0: And now here's your host, Grand Canyon whitewater guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. You're on the Trail Less Traveled, the Trail 103.3's locally harvested adventure radio series. And this evening we're recording in the studios in Missoula, Montana. It feels like a distant dream to be back into this beautiful studio with no windows at the Missoula Broadcasting Company because I've been on the road a wee bit, but I'm really grateful to be back in Missoula right now and being in the studio with Kevin McManigal. San Bano, Kevin. Hey, San Bano. How are you? I'm well. I'm so glad to have you back. Thank you. Kevin, you and I met about... 10 years ago when yeah. you were a guest on the um, the Mandela Experience. Yeah, way back in the
1: day on KBGA and College Radio. Yeah. And I inherited kind of a travel talk show from you. You were on your way out. I was just starting my grad program. And you said, hey, you want to do this? And I thought, oh, how am I going to fit this all in? <laughs> but I went for it. And I named it One for the Road. And I did it for two years of grad school and got a hundred episodes out of it.
0: That's so rad. And you also got best talk show of the year.
1: I did from KBGA, yeah. I I got a little uh, prize of some free music at the Christmas party one year. Yeah, that was cool. Got a good, good, good little award from them.
0: In addition to winning best talk show for one for the road on KBGA, you also won the Excellence in Teaching Award at the University of Montana.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was just in 2017. I was teaching for the geography department. I've been over there for about seven years teaching geography's uh, introduction to GIS and intermediate and advanced GIS courses, and especially cartography in the advanced class. And the spring of 2017, I won the Diane Friend Excellence in Teaching Award.
0: The university's lucky to have you. Thank you. Now, Kevin, the last time you were on the trail us traveled, we talked about your work in 2010. You spent six weeks in the Turgen Mountains in Mongolia, measuring and photographing glaciers exactly 100 years after the old Victorian explorer Douglas Carunthers drew maps, measured and photographed the glaciers.
1: Yeah, that's true. That's what I did my entire uh, master's thesis on, was that project. GIS and cartography is this just great set of tools that allows you to look at so many disciplines and so in my undergraduate work, I was really into recreational GIS. Uh, in my master's, I was looking at you know, glaciology and measuring mass wasting of glaciers. And now in my professional life, I've turned uh, my cartographic and uh, GIS expertise towards conservation, specifically of wildlife.
0: You also have guided climbing, sea hiking, and experiential learning all over the world. Yeah, For those who didn't catch your episode on The Trail Less Traveled years ago, could you tell us about your childhood? Where did you grow up, and how was adventure a part of your childhood?
1: Well, I mean, it depends how far back we want to go, but (laughs) my mom actually took me and my little brother to Guadalajara, Mexico when we were little kids because of some things that were going on in the family. And so I spent two years down there uh, playing in the creeks and running around on on the beaches, and then we made the move back to Southern California. so I grew up in Southern California, and probably the YMCA was, was my adventure outpost. So definitely there was you know all the things you could do at the YMCA after school. But then I got into the YMCA summer camping program. And that changed my whole life. went to summer camp all the way from being a, a camper until I was a director of a YMCA summer camp. And in those times, I was a counselor, a CIT, ran a ropes course, taught kids rock climbing and rappelling, taught backpacking, and ended up, you know, running the camp and then having to train all my own staff for all the different sports that we did at camp from sailing to canoeing to horseback riding to the ropes courses to archery. And even back in the day, we were allowed to shoot BB guns at camp. I don't even know if you can do that anymore. And then I got into experiential education and then was guiding all over the world. Tons of rock climbing in Joshua Tree, you know, living in Southern California. And then, you know, kind of branched into mountaineering and went and climbed some of the bigger peaks around the world. Enjoyed myself there and eventually ended up being a sea kayak guide in Alaska. Met my beautiful gal, Tina. She was a Swiss nurse who was traveling and we fell madly in love and spent the last 20 years putting a life together. And then we ended up here in Missoula went and got my master's, decided the next adventure was building an off-the-grid house out in Potomac. I'm living in a yurt for four years. We we managed to pull off four Montana winters in a yurt, heating with wood, which was cold, to say the least. (laughs) And then now I'm teaching for the University of Montana and trying to make the next exit plan. Seven
0: years from now, Kevin McManigal will be circumnavigating the globe in a Sailboat.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's the big plan. So in the last year, I fell head over heels for sailing. I started taking my ACA, American Sailing Association, classes, moving towards you know some kind of a, a captain's rating. That's the retirement plan. Beautiful. Yeah.
0: Now, Kevin, your most recent project has been mapping protected areas for the most endangered species in the world with a focus on tigers. Just a few statistics that we want to talk about is, for one, 96% of the mammals on planet Earth are livestock and humans, leaving only 4% for wild mammals.
1: Yeah. Isn't that a wild... Just 2,000 years ago, it was exactly flipped. So almost everything on the planet was wild, and there was just a very small percentage of it as humans and their livestock. And now, in 2019... We have a situation where 60% of all mammals are our livestock and us, the humans, are the other 36%. And there's only 4% wild mammals running around on the planet. That paper came out this last summer and they were looking at the biomass of the entire planet and they had a really disturbing statistic that said that we've lost 83% of all the mammals since civilized humanity got into the game. That's not 83% extinction rate. That's just the biomass. So 83% of all the living mammals on the planet are now not here because of us. And it's about 80% of marine mammals and about 50% of all plants. And obviously you start looking at this and you realize this is just not sustainable. We can't continue on in this way. The other thing that we've been looking at is is some of the the megafauna and I think your your listeners will be uh, you know aware that the vast majority of elephants and lions and tigers and mountain gorillas rhinoceros are either endangered or in a threatened status right now meaning that they are literally vulnerable to going extinct and that's that's really all on us that's on humans. So I've been contacted by a number of NGOs to do some GIS work and some mapping in the past. And so I was starting to get a little bit of a reputation at it. And then at one point about four years ago, Dr. Hugh Robinson, which is the director of the spatial analysis lab for the Panthera organization, they're a large cat conservation organization, he walked into my office and told me the story of this problem that they have. They are really focused on the big cats. So if we kind of take a turn towards big cats, in the last 100 years, it's really been devastating to their populations. We've lost about 80% of all the snow leopards in the world. We went from 30,000 to 6,000. Those numbers are hard to come by because it's a very elusive species. But other ones we're able to measure in the field, you know, quite easily. We've gone from about 200,000 down to 20,000 lions in 100 years. You know, it's like a 90% decrease. From 100,000 down to 7,000 cheetahs. So we've lost 93% of them. And in Asia, the tigers, we've gone from 100,000 tigers 100 years ago down to about 4,000 today. You know, that's a 96% decrease in their numbers just in 100 years. It's obviously unsustainable. And if something isn't done in short order, we will no longer have wild tigers. A really kind of disturbing statistic is there's more tigers alive in captivity in Texas than there are alive in the wild. It's a hard number to really wrap your head around. First thing as scientists, we want to ask, well, what's causing this, right? What, what's, what's the reason that we're seeing these dramatic reductions? And for the longest time, and it's still true, habitat destruction and loss was really the number one problem. Uh, not coincidentally, the 96% loss of tiger population coincides directly with a 96% loss of their habitat. So in Asia, they've lost 96% of the former range that they used to be roaming Now, this is due in large part to humans and to the expansion of human population. But recently, we've done a pretty good job of actually putting a lot of land into protection. So we've got about 200,000 protected areas in the world, and they're in various stages of actual protection. And in the literature now, there are some parks that are gaining a reputation as a paper park. So it's it's a park in name only. It's been designated. It might have a border drawn around it on a map, but there's been almost no mapping of its internal structure done. And it turns out about 50% of all protected terrestrial lands in the world have not been mapped at a level that will help them actually do their job of protecting it. So in Asia, they've got many of these protected lands, but not a whole lot in the way of infrastructure for actually securing them. And so the other you know, conflicts with locals, maybe killing of, of a wild tiger because it's predated on somebody's sheep or their goats, has definitely happened in the past. But the number one problem that we're having right now is poaching. The animals have been pushed into these very small kind of remote areas all around Asia. And it's their final stand, these little small protected parks in Asia where, where the last populations of wild tigers actually live are literally the last places that they can make a stand and hopefully make it through this craziness that humans are going through right now and then you know come out of it in the end and expand to bigger ranges and larger landscapes if over time we can protect them in these small areas. So that's really what my work has focused on for the last four years. And at the end, I'll be able to give you some great news because we've seen some, some really positive results from what we're doing. I'd like to take all the credit in the world for it, but it's not just me. I'm just part of a bigger system that's actually helping these animals and, and helping us find a way to make sure that future generations will be able to see them in the wild.
0: That is the voice of Kevin McManagle. You are on the trail, less traveled. Kevin's most recent project has been mapping protected areas for the most endangered species in the world – We're talking mainly this evening about tigers, lions, and snow leopards. When we come back, we're going to talk about the parks that he has done some of his mapping in recently. But Kevin, now it's time for a song. And my apologies, I didn't prepare you for this one, but you're a music guy. Is there a song that comes to mind that reminds you of your time in...
1: Mama Africa. Mama Africa. Well, I like the songs from Senegal, but I don't have the names right off the top of my head. But we did map a park in Senegal, and it'd be really cool if you could pick something nice for me.
2: G'day, mate. This is Joe, coming to you from the Sunshine Coast in Eastern Australia. The Trail Less Traveled podcast is sponsored by Desert Green Hemp. Family farmed, organically grown, tested and manufactured in Sisters, Oregon. Desert Green is a collective of farms on the eastern foothills of the Oregon Cascade range that grow and produce the highest quality full-spectrum CBD products currently on the market. Desert Green grows some of the finest genetics in the world using organic and biodynamic practices to provide the cleanest and most effective CBD. The rich volcanic mountain soils, dry climate and directly sourced mountain spring waters are what gives Desert Green uniquely pure and powerful CBD products. They also grow a variety of herbs and flowers on their farms that not only provide a direct source for some of their products, but also introduce beneficial bugs and pollinators to their land. Desert Green hemp pride themselves on contributing to the regeneration of social, economic and environmental health on our planet. Visit DesertGreenHemp.com to check out some of their products, including CBD honey, olive oil, salve, mint yarrow CBD tincture, and hemp flour for smoking. Visit DesertGreenHemp.com and remember to use the promo code MANDELA, M-A-N-D-E-L-A. This promo code will get you discounts and special offers. That promo code, Mandela, directly helps you and the future of Adventure Radio. This evening, The Trail
0: Less Traveled is being recorded at the Missoula Broadcasting Company, nestled here in the beautiful mountains of Missoula, Montana. We are in the studio with Kevin McManigal. Kevin has been mapping protected areas for the most endangered species in the world, with a focus on tigers, lions, and snow leopards. Now we're going to talk about the Parza Wildlife Reserve in Nepal.
1: Yeah. Back in 2014, Dr. Robinson came uh, from the Panthera organization, just walked to my office and said, I have a problem. I've got rangers in this park in uh, Nepal. It's called the Parso Wildlife Reserve. And it's right next to the Chitwan National Park, which is a really popular park in Nepal. It has great protection, a lot of funding, a lot of infrastructure from the government of Nepal and the EU and other organizations. But right next door, sharing a border is a huge wildlife area that is pretty much equal in size and they have a vibrant thriving population of tigers in Chitwan and almost no tigers living in Parsa same exact ecosystem and they knew that the problem was poaching poachers were in the past sometimes extremely poverty-stricken villagers who just needed either bushmeat or wanted to sell a tiger on the black market but in recent years it's really become an extremely well-organized black market in wildlife trade and most of the tigers are going to the traditional medicinal purposes and uses in China. They've tried just about everything. They've tried to cut out the middleman by buying the tiger parts before they can make it to China. They've tried uh, different campaigns to raise awareness of the ineffectiveness, you know, scientifically proven that it has no effect for municipal purposes in China, but it, it's going to be very difficult to change thousands of years of culture. you know. And they've tried to basically stop the poachers by putting them in jail and so on and so forth. And that works to an extent until a tiger is worth 500,000 or a million, and then people will come. So they found poacher gangs that were from out of country with ex-special forces leaders from countries like Russia and China in countries like Nepal and India and other places. It's a huge trade and it's really affecting, especially the tigers. A recent study showed that it's about 19% mortality rate from poaching per year. One in five wild tigers are dying per year from poaching. We can't keep going this way, right? So the most effective strategy right now is to put armed guards in the field, patrolling these wild spaces and stopping the poaching. But In Parsa, for example, we have rangers doing the best they can, but they're getting lost in the jungle. Extremely dense jungles. (laughs) They have GPS units with poor base maps on them. Even when they do come out of the canopy and get a signal from the satellites, they don't have any reference as to where they are in relationship to maybe a poaching gang that they've been told about over the radio. So they were spending hours and hours, if not days, trashing through these thick jungles, lost in many cases, unable to do their jobs efficiently. So uh, Dr. Robinson came to me and said, Kevin, can you make us 1 to 25,000 topographic maps, the same style of maps that we have here in the United States from the USGS? And a lot of people might go, well, don't we already have the whole world mapped to that scale? And it's just not the case. We do not. Uh, And I said, sure, I think we can do this. I have the technology. I have the student workforce. Obviously, we'll need some money. But the main thing we needed was data. And so we didn't know if any data existed. First thing I did was just start searching for data on the Parsa Wildlife Reserve. And what I found were some really old maps that were done in the 70s, some tourist maps that are done kind of cartoon style for kids, but certainly nothing that you could use to navigate in the field. We looked around for GIS data, so geographic information systems data, And there wasn't much of that at all. I was able to find some stuff out there. You know, OpenStreetMap has some things. But in the park itself, it's very remote, extremely dense jungle. That's where people aren't going. So there is no trip advisor there. There's no data. So um, after looking deeply into this, I went back to him and said, yes, we can make these things. But what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to get uh, high-resolution satellite imagery. And we're going to have to have the students hand digitize over the top of it. Every single trail, every hut, every village, every road, every river, everything. And then we can put the maps together. And he said, how much is this going to cost? I said, I have no idea. <laughs> I've never done it before. But it's going to cost a bit and it's going to take a lot of hours. So we did the best that we could. We, uh, we approached Panthera with a, with a bid And they said, "Okay, let's do a test project. Let's go ahead and do it. Then we went looking for some free satellite imagery. And luckily, we were able to put together a relationship with the DigiGlobe Corporation. And they donated to us one meter satellite imagery, which then I could even refine down to about a half a meter. So you could literally see a person on a bicycle and see the shadow of them riding on the road. If there was a person in a pixel, you could tell if it was a balding man or not, or if they were wearing a hat. We keep hoping we're going to see a tiger in one of these images, but we haven't yet. We went ahead and started uh, digitizing, and I put students to work using their newfound skills from the classes they're taking for me up at the University of Montana, and they would bring up that satellite imagery on a computer screen and do what we call heads-up digitizing, where they just go through and digitize every single feature that they see. And it took months and months and months. It took us about 10 months of data creation. Once we had all the data created, I went back to the uh, Global Ask, and we got in touch with the Airbus corporation out of France. And Airbus is famous for making airplanes, but they also have satellites in space. And they have a a satellite in space that was able to fly over the Parcel Wildlife Reserve for us and generate a synthetic aperture radar DEM, which is called a digital elevation model. And using that, I could create a really nice shaded relief of the park so I would be able to see the contours of the land and see you know where the rises and the valleys and the ridge lines are. But even more important, we were able to produce really high-resolution contours. So our, our maps here, the USGS, those are about 40-foot contours. For these maps, we were making 10-foot contours. So they're really, really detailed. And putting all that together, getting all that data created – Like I said, it took about 10 months. And then we had to take all that data that we created and got from all these different sources and take it out of the GIS environment and take it into more of a graphics environment. And that's where we started working with Adobe Illustrator and Adobe Photoshop and InDesign, putting together these individual map sheets that map the park at this 1 to 25,000 scale. And so for that park, I think in the end, we did 16 map sheets. And it took us about a year.
0: And then after a little bit of math, Kevin, you figured out that it took three weeks per map sheet?
1: Yeah, yeah. So we did those map sheets in about a year, and then we took a little bit of a break, got another contract to do another park. That one was in India. It's called Manus National Park. And then we had a park that we left the Asian countries and went to Senegal to do mapping for lions. And that one took us a little bit less. So each time we're learning a lot, a lot of our uh, models are already figured out. We have templates for all of our styles. So we know exactly what every road is going to look like and and how we're going to label a village and what's going to make the maps look really good and professional and easy to use in the field. And then we uh, came back and this last project we just finished is in Malaysia. It's called uh, Kenyur Taman Nagata National Park in Malaysia. And that one we were able to produce in about nine months total. But when we added those all up, all those like I think about 70 map sheets and did the math, it takes us about three weeks per map sheet to knock these out. And that's a little too slow because the tigers really need them now. Panthera has 18 Tiger Forever sites all over Asia. It's a program where they've targeted the most threatened but also the most viable landscapes all throughout Asia with countries that are willing to work with NGOs to help them really protect these animals. And 18 sites ends up being about 300 map sheets, and that would take me about 18 years. So we need to get it down to about one week per map sheet, which I think we can do. It's just a matter of, of a little bit more money and throwing more students at the work. The vast majority of our time is spent creating data. And so we've been thinking of all kinds of ways we can, we can speed this up. Certainly if I had you know, 20 students working on creating data instead of only six or eight, then that would probably speed us up to the point of where we could maybe get these done in, I don't know, six or seven years, just in time for me to go sailing. Yeah, that would be ideal.
0: If you're just tuning in, that is the voice of Kevin McManigle. Kevin has been mapping protected areas for the most endangered species in the world with a focus on tigers, snow leopards, and lions. Now, over the past century, tigers have dropped from 100,000 to about 3,900. Cheetahs from 100,000 to 7,100. Lions from 200,000 to 20,000. Snow leopards are always hard to track, but it dropped from 30,000 to around 6,000. Now, a lot of the loss of tigers in the world is because of the illegal black market trade in Asia, and that specifically is tiger bone wine. Kevin, what is tiger bone wine, and why do people drink it?
1: Well, to the best of my knowledge, they get a tiger, and all of its parts are sold. So there's all different parts of the tiger that are sold for medicinal purposes and for traditional medicines and traditional religious purposes. The skin, obviously, is very valuable. Crazy enough, there's still a market to make coats and stuff, especially in Russia. But the tiger bones are taken and soaked in large vats of wine. I've never actually seen one in person or drank the stuff. I would never. But the pictures I've seen, they look almost like a giant fish tank with a skeleton of a tiger in it that's filled with a wine where it soaks for months and months and months and then is taken off of the top and put into, into bottles of tiger wine and it's for traditional chinese medicine and it's supposed to be an aphrodisiac and also to help men with you know their problems downstairs even though it's been proven scientifically that it has no effect whatsoever for those purposes it simply does not work for that but unfortunately it's going to be very difficult and probably take many generations to convince the billion or more chinese people who believe that this is actually a, a good medicine f- for these uses.
0: Yeah, that knowledge goes back over 5000 years. And so I'd love to talk to you later on about, you know, how that idea could potentially change in China at one point. But we're talking about tigers right now, but you know, this is also affecting rhinos and elephants, and mm-hmm. a lot of the ivory in China is actually ground down and then, you know, made into little trinkets that are hung on keychains and all that. But if tigers aren't found it's also trickling down into cheetahs and leopards. There's like a black market within the black market where they will actually use lion bones and they'll
1: label yeah. it tiger bones. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's like a it's a it's a pirated tiger bone. Inside of already a huge black market, it's happening also with the the rhinoceros horn. So rhinoceros horn is powdered and used for medicine as well. And when they can't get it, they will powder a water buffalo horn or something similar. And once it's in that powdered format, there's no way for the, the end consumer to really know and that's another interesting thing about this is that this entire traditional medicine, there's no regulation of it. There's no nobody checking the production. There's nobody testing what the ingredients in these individual pills. So not only do they not work if they're 100% pure, but if they're filled with powdered dirt, then they they certainly aren't going to work at all. And in many cases, it might just be a placebo effect. People really believe it will work, and the power of the human mind is pretty special. So maybe it does work for them if they really, truly believe Unfortunately, it's decimating these populations of animals. The rhinoceros are in in critical danger. And we've already lost the last wild white rhinoceros, northern white rhino. I heard a story about a year ago that they jumped the fence at the zoo in Paris and cut the horn off of a rhinoceros that was in captivity. And and it's just heartbreaking, you know. There has to be a way that we can change this. I've often thought on the tiger side of things, again, that if somebody would rebrand Viagra and call it Tiagra, and just make little pills with tiger stripes on them, not only would they be billionaires, but it might solve this whole problem, and it would actually work, right? <laughs> I know that's a great idea. Should, <laughs> <laughs> should patent that. Like I said before, they're trying on every front. NGOs around the world, some people are really into crime fighting. Some are really into uh, making more uh, protected lands. But right now, with the tigers especially, we're down to the last stand. I mean, these small protected places in Asia are the last places the tigers are alive. And if we don't stop the poaching now, they won't be alive that much longer, especially if we're losing one in five a year to poaching. It's just not sustainable. So I'm putting my expertise behind trying to stop the poaching by being one small part of the puzzle. So putting these guys in the field, doing the anti-poaching patrols, there's a lot of training that goes into all the things that they need to know, but certainly navigation is one of them. And so my maps are really helping them find their way in the field. But all the data we're creating and the data they're collecting now is helping us kind of throw a technological net over these entire protected lands where we start to really know everything that's happening in these parks. So we can go out in the field and put game cams on trees in specific places, especially known wildlife paths, which the poachers tend to follow as well. As it stands today, the rangers have to go back and check those cameras in a week or a couple of weeks or sometimes a month, depending on how deep in the park it is, and then see what kind of things they've captured. So it helps us count the animals, it helps us count their prey, and it also helps us find the poachers. And through the GIS technology and the data that my team has created, we can tie all those things together and then we can start using the power of GIS to analyze the movement patterns, to analyze the least cost pathways through these, these landscapes so that we can predict where the animals are going to be and where the poachers are going to be and try and get the rangers in between those two groups.
0: Beautiful. Now, your research and mapping has been successful. There has been a 19% increase in tigers in Nepal within the last four years. Yay. Congratulations.
1: Isn't that cool? I'd like to say it's all because of the maps. But like I said, we're just one part of this bigger puzzle. I mean, really, the heroes of the whole story are the rangers. Those guys are going into the field every single day looking for bad guys with guns who are willing to fight. So the poachers are a foe that is, is not going to lie down. They're quite aggressive. There's been a lot of things that have happened over the years to ranger patrols that aren't so nice. So these guys really go out there in battle mode. It's a war. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, it's gotten to that. But yeah, they're the true heroes. They're the true heroes. But in Parsa in particular, we sent the maps over there in 2014. There was some uh, training of the rangers. They were deployed to the field. People started using them. And then they started bringing data back. And then we can actually measure how much ground they've covered. So after they've gone on a number of patrols back at the headquarters, they can look at a GIS and say, wow, you're, you're missing the whole southeast corner of the park. You need to do more patrols there. And that's normal. I, th- I think, you know, especially if you have to bushwhack and cut a new trail, we tend to, as humans, to go for the easy road and, and follow paths that we've already been on. But that leaves huge parts of the park that have been unexplored. And so the technology helps us make sure we have total coverage. With that comes more coverage of the cameras, and a beautiful thing happened when we started getting more cameras into the park. Just this last year, for the first time in decades, they actually had a camera evidence of babies being born. So we have some tiger kittens born in the park, two of them running around, and it's a huge success story. And we always knew it was possible. There's a great population in Chitwan right next door, so the only reason that there wouldn't be a thriving population in Parsa was because of poaching. And now that they seem to have gotten a handle on this and the poachers know, if they go into our park, they're going to get caught, they're going to be arrested, and they're going to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. It's reduced the number of them going in. The rangers are not going to give up. They're going to remain diligent. And it's going to probably be a lifetime job for them. So it's a success story that we love to hear. And it's not the only one. So we've had other successes in other parks as well.
0: When we come back, we're going to talk about those other parks. You were on the trail last traveled, and this evening we're speaking with Kevin McManigal. He is a professor at the University of Montana, teaching intro to GIS and intermediate GIS. These students are helping with this project as well, and this focus has been mapping protected areas for the most endangered species in the world, with a focus on tigers, lions, and snow leopards. Kevin, it's time for another song. Another song.
1: Well... I'd like to go back to an old song that I used as my bumper music back in the day when I had my own radio show. It's Johnny Cash, I've Been Everywhere Man.
0: This evening, The Trail Less Traveled is being recorded at the Missoula Broadcasting Company here in beautiful Missoula, Montana. We are speaking with professor at the University of Montana, Kevin McManigal. Recently, Kevin's main project has been mapping protected areas for the most endangered species in the world with a focus on tigers, lions, and snow leopards. Now I have another guest with me this evening, Joshua, and he's a friend of mine, and he has an excellent question for Kevin, so I'll turn it over to him and have him ask.
1: Kevin, growing up, I was taught about how the elephant and the lion and those large fauna animals were important to protect because all the animals underneath them, like other species, would also be protected. And so what I'm curious is that when you're creating this restoration of populations, what are they finding? What are they finding in the physical landscapes? Instead of taking away the large fauna, you're putting them back. At our parks, where we're doing the the maps for tigers specifically, just having the rangers in the field patrolling, trying to protect the tigers, obviously also protects the other animals that they live with in those jungles, particularly the forest elephants and the rhinoceroses and so forth. And by increasing the populations of those megafauna, it changes the entire way that the jungle and its landscape acts. So a more local example is what we found as we reintroduced wolves to Yellowstone, so there's this idea in biology that's uh, gaining a lot of traction called trophic cascades. And it's where the top predators in an ecosystem affect everything below them, including the physical geography of the landscape. So in Yellowstone, when we introduced wolves, they went out and, of course, did what wolves do, which is hunt undulants, right, the, the deer and the elk. And for all those years that the deer and the elk were removed from that ecosystem, they changed the way that the vegetation grew around the rivers. Of course, because the elk and the deer were down there eating all the small willow shoots and and aspen shoots. And as soon as the wolves came back, they started controlling those populations and pushing them out of the river bottoms and back up onto the hillsides. And that changed the vegetation of the rivers, and it actually changed the physical geography of how the rivers flowed through those valley bottoms. It brought back the vegetation, which brought back the birds— And with the predatory birds, then, of course, they were around and they were controlling the mice and the the other small mammals. And everything in the entire ecosystem changed by reintroducing just the wolves. So it, it leads us to believe that this is also going to be the case when you reintroduce tigers and lions and the other big predators, but also, um, you know, just the big animals like the elephants and the rhinoceros. They obviously affect their landscapes, and in Africa, the elephants are huge landscape architects, as I'm sure that Mandela can attest to. So it's really important for us to keep these animals in our eco-regions and in our biosphere. They're part of the earth that we really can't live without. They're so important, and we are just now beginning to understand how important they are to us. Yeah.
0: If you are just joining us, Kevin provided a couple statistics earlier on in the show, and one of the most shocking ones was that currently 96% of the population of mammals on planet Earth are humans and their livestock, leaving only 4% to wild animals. Kevin, speaking about how everything is connected, you mentioned something absolutely brilliant in regards to what happens when an Alaskan brown bear poops underneath a tree. Oh. What happens to that tree?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of interesting science has been happening lately, and um, there's a whole body of knowledge that is now pointing to something that I think we all probably knew intuitively, and that's the interconnectedness. There are whole microbial and fungal mats that live under the forest, and they're just like this giant communication and trading network. So the trees actually talk to each other. The trees share nutrients. They make deals with the the fungus to take some of its nutrients and then give it back to it later when it needs it. And it turns out that they also help recycle all of the biology that's deposited, like when a bear goes into the river, gets a salmon, eats it. And then he goes up and scratches his back up against a nice big tree and then, he, you know, does his business right there like bears do in the woods, even if nobody's there to see it, right? But now they're doing DNA tests and finding that a certain percent of the DNA of the tree is salmon, Because of what the bear deposited and the way that that salmon gets into the tree and into its DNA is by the fungus coming up and reclaiming all of that protein and recycling it, putting it down into the ground and sharing it with the tree. To think that we can live on this planet completely detached from that and all the things that we are doing won't affect that and in turn affect this enormous ecosystem that we rely on for our livelihoods is crazy. It's just crazy talk. We have to start realizing that we're stuck on a rock floating through space, and it's the only one we're going to get. We might go to the stars, but it's going to take a long time. And I really hope that we get with it and over the next century or so, do what's right for the Earth, our only home, and make it a place that we want to still live on so that even though we do go to the stars, we always have Earth to return to.
0: Apathy towards environment is mankind's ticket to extinction. It's one of my favorite quotes.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, no doubt about it.
0: Kevin, let's talk about landscapes in Africa. we were talking about Nepal. Uh, Africa provides perhaps a challenge. And you spent some time in Senegal?
1: Yeah. In Senegal, we mapped a portion of a park called Neocolokoba. This is another panthera site, but it's uh, for lion conservation this time. So they had very few lions there, but it had a, a landscape and an ecosystem which should be able to support quite a few more. So we mapped an area of that park. They were actually building some new roads and trying to build a new ranger post out in the field. And so our maps were helping with that. But what we found is that the landscapes in Africa are just so much bigger than the parks that we're dealing with in Asia Niokolo was cool though. We we did it the same way that we'd done the other parks, where the students digitized all of the data. And uh, an interesting feature that they found a lot of were these small water holes or salt pans where water had been but dried up. And in that landscape and in that environment, it's a really important resource for the animals. So we mapped over a hundred of them across twenty some odd map sheets. And when we sent that data to the to the rangers in Senegal. They took it, put it in their GPS units and on their tablets, and drove out to all these waterholes. And they found waterholes that they never knew existed. They had no idea they were there. In fact, there was a quite large one about 10 kilometers from one of their ranger posts. And they went out, and lo and behold, there's a poacher camp. And they arrested those poachers and put them in jail. So instantly, our data and our maps were helping to stop the poaching. But after doing the numbers and looking at how long it's taking for us to do these maps— we got some feedback from the guys in Africa, and they said, hey, we love the big paper maps, but it just takes too long to make them. We need better navigational equipment and technology now, not in 5, six, seven, eight, nine, 10 years. And the popularity of the maps started coming to the fore. We had contact from some parks in Angola. They needed 1,125 map sheets to map their two parks. It would take us years and years and years. I think I did the numbers, and it was about 72 years for us to map four different parks in Africa at the current rate that we're going. We said, this isn't going to fly. We have to come up with a better design. The high-end, high-resolution paper maps for the super-dense jungles in Asia for tigers, that might be the way to go, but it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all mapping solution. So in Africa, what we're moving towards now is a hybrid of Satellite imagery on geospatially enabled devices, so basically cell phones that have a GPS or tablets, and we'll have satellite imagery and maybe shaded relief that I generate, but not every one of the features will be on there. So we won't have the time to have the students sit down and digitize everything. So our hope is that we'll just get this into the field quickly, and as the rangers do their patrols, they will help us create the data. So over time, they will actually create the lines that we need for all the roads. They'll create the points that we need for all the water holes. And as we build that data up, then in the future, it'll be fast and, and fairly economical to go ahead and produce the high-end maps on the data that they created. But in the meantime, they'll have a tool that they can use to go around and navigate in the field.
0: And in this day and age where we have just so much beautiful technology within our reach, we're moving towards... A point in conservation where you'll have a camera which is set up so that when a lion or a tiger is in the area, it can instantly send that coordinates to a ranger who can drive out there to make sure that that one particular lion or tiger or snow leopard is safe.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're already there in some parks. It's a little bit easier with elephants to carry like a large collar that has a GPS on it and a large battery. And they're actually have programs where they fly drones over an individual elephant 24 hours a day. So the drone just follows the elephant from a high altitude... And when this battery goes low, another one swoops in. It's crazy that we've gotten to this point where we have to have individual protection for individual animals. Some of you might have seen you know, recent articles in National Geographic and other magazines where some of the rhinoceroses have their own protection next to them all the time. They have their own personal ranger. Generally, I kind of think of the rhinoceros as being a fairly scary animal to walk up close to, like I would never just jump out of a safari jeep and try and go pet one. But these guys do. They pet these rhinoceros. It's almost like a dog for them. But they're so used to them that they're around them all the time. But they're also carrying, you know, a large weapon to protect the animal from poachers. For the cats, they're a little bit more secretive. And we can't put a a GPS collar on them that will last, you know, forever. They do collar some of these animals just to get an idea where they are. But we can do things that are a little less uh, obtrusive, a little bit more passive by just flooding the entire protected area with, with game cameras. The problem with uh, standard game cam is you have to go out and collect the data from it. So Panther has been putting a lot of time and effort into enabling these game cameras with Bluetooth for one, so you can just walk up to it and put the, uh, the data right onto a cell phone or a, or a tablet. And then they've also been working on enabling them with uh, cell phone network capabilities. Unfortunately, some of these parks are so remote, there's no cell phone. Uh, there's no network, there's no signal. So the next big step now is to enable them with some kind of satellite communication so that if the camera gets a picture, it can instantly send that via email over a satellite network like the Iridium network to a headquarters where a head ranger, a GIS analysis, can look at it, and then they can make a a, a judgment call. Do we need to send a team out there right away or not? They've even done some really interesting things where they have a little bit of image classification inside the camera, and it can tell if it's a two-legger or a four-legger. So the camera might be told, only send us pictures of two-leggers. We'll collect the four-leggers when we come out there. That way it saves a little bit of battery. So it gets a picture of a two-legger, sends it to headquarters, and they look at it and go, oh, that's not one of our guys. We better dispatch a ranger team out there right away. This is where it's all headed. Most likely, I'd say in the next 10 to 15 years, the parks that are getting a lot of infrastructure and a lot of support from international organizations, from the EU and from NGOs, they're going to have uh, complete protection systems over the entire park, where they really know what's out there in the landscape. They can model the number of animals they have, model the number of prey, and know all the places that are potential entry points and exit points for poachers. And make sure that the the rangers are just there and on it all the time. And most likely, I really believe we can stop the poaching. And we've had so many success stories now that it's become one of those things that just seems self evident. This works protection in the parks works. We just need to put every last effort we have behind it. And in the future, it'd be great if we can make bigger parks, if we can stop the illegal wildlife trade. All those things are are really valid goals to keep, you know, charging after. But stopping the poaching on the ground today is something we can do right now.
0: I'd like to read a quote from Alan Vitz. Rabanowitz. Rabanovitz. yeah, Dr. Alan Rabanowitz. Yeah,
1: he's the founder of Panthera, and he just passed away last year. But he did enormous work for big cats in his life, and tigers were really his first love. And yeah, uh, it's a great quote. You can go ahead and read that
0: one. The energy on Earth with big predators is a very, very different energy. It's this huge, positive, overwhelming force which humbles you makes you realize that there are things much greater on the earth than you.
1: Amen. Yeah, no, that's a great one. He was a conservationist who wasn't just behind a computer, unlike myself, although I get in the field whenever I can. But he was out there. He was out there making the connections with locals, talking to people about the science, uh, figuring out what works and what doesn't in in field conservation, and writing the book literally on uh, the best practices for rangers and ranger patrols and for wildlife protection in the field. A really, really inspiring man who did a lot for, for the big cats.
0: As well as yourself, we are speaking with Kevin McManigle, who is mapping protected areas for the most endangered species around the world. Kevin, for the listeners around the world who want to do something,
1: what can they do? they can stop using plastic. No, I'm sorry. That's a personal bent. Um, (laughs) If you want to help protect the big cats, the Panthera organization has a great website, some really, really uh, well done uh, media campaigns. They have a a donation page. They have all their species broken out by the different programs and what they're doing all over the world. And if you wanted to put uh, some money towards them, I can guarantee you that it will go to do good. Also, though, if you want to help American students work on these projects, donating to the University of Montana, I can be reached there at McManigal at mso.umt.edu. And I'd be glad to talk about how we can uh, put more maps in the hands of rangers that are in the field. And I will be using students and paying them well to make the maps.
0: And the Panthera website is p-a-n-t-h-e-r-a.org.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, why I'm here, I'd like to thank just – so many people that have helped me through these projects. Definitely the Panthera Organization, the University of Montana, Dr. Hugh Robinson with the Panthera Organization, Dr. Than Robinson with the University of Montana. I have to thank the Geography Department in the College of Humanities and Sciences, and my new home, the uh, Department of Forest Management over in the W.A. Frankie College of uh, Forestry and Conservation. I have to also thank some of our data providers like the Digital Globe Foundation, Airbus in France, and Planet Imagery. They've been super helpful, and we couldn't have done it without them.
0: And if you are a student at the University of Montana, I would encourage you to sign up for... Dr. Kevin McManigal's introduction to GIS and intermediate GIS class this semester. Yeah.
1: yeah, and next fall my advanced cartographic design class, where we get into the Adobe suite and really, you know, doing beautiful maps that you would see in magazines like National Geographic. I have to just make one correction. I'm only a master's. Okay. Yep. I'm not a doctorate professor. professor. Yes, good enough. Yep. But, but you always have to be careful.
0: <laughs> awesome, Kevin. It is always a pleasure to have you in the studio and to know you, and you're doing great work out there. Thank you so much for your time and for joining me on The Trail
1: Less Traveled. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mandela. It's been a pleasure.
0: Let's end this program with three bits of advice
1: that you can share with a listener. Get out there, make a difference, know that you are making a difference, and no matter what, never look back, only forward. Beautiful. What song would you like to end your show with? Oh, k Wave the Flag because that was the only song we had on our, on our DVD as we drove across Mongolia trying to find ancient glaciers.
0: Namaste Missoula, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure radio series dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from the most remote locations around the world. I'd like to thank my guest for this week, Kevin McManigal. McManagall is mapping protected areas for the most endangered species in the world, mainly tigers, lions, and snow leopards. I'm going to share some statistics with you, but before I do that, I want to kindly remind you that apathy towards environment is mankind's ticket to extinction. Sometimes it's hard to hear these statistics, but I think it's really important to be informed about what's going on on planet Earth as she experiences her sixth mass extinction. 96% of mammals on planet Earth are livestock and humans, leaving only 4% for wild animals. We have lost 83% of all mammals on the planet due to human impact. 80% of marine animals and 50% of all plants are also lost due to human impact. We have lost 80% of all snow leopards on the planet, and in the last 100 years, we've had a 96% decrease in the population of tigers, which coincides with a 96% loss of habitat. Kevin McManigal and his students are helping map some of the 200,000 protected areas in the world, making it easier for rangers to find poachers before they find the animals. If you want to learn about protecting tigers, please contact Kevin McManigal at the University of Montana, or visit... Panthera.org. P-A-N-T-H-E-R-A.org. The Trail Less Traveled is a free podcast on all podcast platforms. And the show airs every Sunday night at 6 p.m. You can stream it live online at trail1033.com. And you can follow the show as it's recorded on location around the world at traveled.net. My adventure tip this week is to become more familiar with cartography and orienteering just so that you're not solely relying on technology because you will find yourself in parts of the world where the technology simply doesn't work. Well, that's it for this week, my friends in Missoula, Montana and around the world. But until next week's adventure, I invite you to do something for Mother Earth and get outside and shred the gnar. Because as you know, the gnar does not shred itself.